I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. The Chronicles of Riddick, Part 6. Riddick. Don't know how many times I've been crossed off the list and left for dead. So this... This ain't nothing new. Bounty hunters. I've been hunting ready for ten years. He's the most dangerous man we've ever tracked. Bounty's been doubled. I've come to collect your head in a box. Right here! So yet again, we play for blood. This is a man who sees in the dark. So watch out for surprise attacks. What is it? One down. Three down. You get where I'm going with this. Again! What is happening? Time's up. Yeah. Let's cut him loose. You're not afraid of the dark, are you? This is, to date, the final part of the Chronicles of Riddick. Nine years after the Chronicles of Riddick, in 2013, the year after The Avengers, the year before Guardians of the Galaxy, a simpler time when the words twerk and selfie were added to the dictionary, and the world gasped as Justin Bieber was caught peeing into a bucket. For Vin Diesel, things were looking up. Fast and Furious 4 had been a success in 2009, reuniting the original cast at last. Fast 5 had been an even bigger hit in 2011, bringing in Dwayne Johnson, with everyone involved firing on all cylinders. And this year, in 2013, Fast and Furious 6 would continue that upward trend. Riddick, aka the Chronicles of Riddick, Riddick, aka Riddick, colon, rule the dark. So that's the Chronicles of Riddick, colon, assault on dark Athena, the Chronicles of Riddick, dark fury, and the Chronicles of Riddick, colon, rule the dark, was originally going to be titled the Chronicles of Riddick, dead man stalking. After watching it again on Blu-ray, I wish they had spent nine years developing both character and compelling tone, rather than what it was going to be called. Because as things transpired back in 2004, the second film in The Chronicles of Riddick, The Chronicles of Riddick, Part 5, made $115 million on a $120 million budget. It was a box office bomb. Audiences did not warm to the characters or the story. Two years later, in 2006, Diesel agreed to make a cameo in Universal's film The Fast and the Furious colon Tokyo Drift in exchange for the ownership to the rights to the Riddick franchise and the character. So I'm guessing Universal were like, ah, you can fucking have him. I don't, we don't care. We can't make money from this guy. The intention was to make another R-rated picture like Pitch Black. They expected it to be independent. Since they did not have enough money to shoot the film in its entirety... Vin Diesel had to mortgage his house, obtain loans, and spend most of his personal money on the production of this film. If we didn't finish the movie, I would be homeless. This last bit is actually impressive to me. This is not just a prima donna strutting around the stage demanding to be fawned over by the richest people in the world. 
This is an artist who is so passionate about his Dungeons & Dragons OC, created by David Toohey but brought to life by Diesel, that he would literally put his life and career on the line for one more chance to make things right. It reminds me of the way Kevin Smith sold his comic collection and his car in order to make clerks. And so this one cost a great deal less, $38 million, and I will tell you at the end whether that paid off. Well. Okay, so Act 1, every time I see this film I go, oh, it's not so bad actually, because Act 1 is actually pretty focused and less obnoxious than The Chronicles of Riddick, The Chronicles of Riddick. The first thing that hit me here, and this is from just experience of now watching movies on, on this TV, I noticed the switch to digital immediately. The difference between film in The Chronicles of Riddick and digital here made this look more like something made for TV. Mm, yeah, there's a, there's a quality to, I don't even know how to pick out what it is, but there's definitely something in the colors that makes everything look slightly flat. Mm. David Egby was the cinematographer on this. He was the uh, DP for Mad Max. Remember when I said that uh, Chronicles of Riddick was a bit Mad Maxy? Well, they got the DP for the original Mel Gibson Mad Max. Uh, he was also the DP on Dragonheart, which actually makes sense. If you think about the way he frames people in that film, there is a, a connection between this. But he was also the DP on Pitch Black, but he was not the DP on Chronicles of Riddick. That was Hugh Johnson, who worked on film two. He was the DP for White Squall. You remember that one? And Aragon. This is why I said, you know, getting Tarsum Singh to direct Chronicles of Riddick, at least then it would have been visually striking, like really. So it's, it's not horrible to look at, Chronicles, like especially compared to a lot of the crappy Taken-style films that came afterwards in the 2000s. There's some big operatic stuff there but it doesn't look stunning no it's it's not engaging because everything is so monochrome mm. but what you're looking at is conveyed crisply and with mm. like it everything looks like it is what it is yeah so that means for this for film 3 they went back to the the film 1 pitch black style like they were going to go let's make this more like pitch black and that persisted throughout graham ravel returned for the music but he was the uh, composer for all of them so it, it gives riddick this consistent musical style mm. we begin with riddick marooned on planet yellow it's a very yellow planet and as the time goes on, it gets a bit orangey and then goes dark at the end. But it starts off really fucking yellow. One of the my... water's yellow, the rocks are yellow, the creatures are yellowish, yeah. and there's a lot of yellow everywhere. One of my notes when there's there's a brief intro bit that takes place immediately after the end of Chronicles of Riddick to link the two together in the version that we saw. I don't know how much of that is in the theatrical release. And the note I put down was the visual aesthetic has a little more colour, mostly blue, a little green, some yellow. But on this planet, it looks like someone peed in the filter. Yeah, it's very yellow. At the beginning, 
Willow pointed out that uh, like, uh, there's a vulture trying to pick at Riddick's body and he grabs it by the throat. And Willow was like, ah, this is like Prometheus, only he's striking back at the uh, the eagle who rips out his Prometheus liver every if day. if he was a badass. Yeah. But to me, it actually reminded me of Conan the Barbarian. Do you remember when he's mm. he's like, uh, he's being crucified and then a vulture lands on his shoulder to start pecking at him and he goes, and then bites the vulture. Yeah. I'm going to use my own body as bait yeah. <laughs> to catch food. So again, we are persisting with the whole Conan thing. Mm. So at the beginning, Riddick is sick to death of being king of the boring Cenobite people. He sat on the throne like God of War. Groupies blowing him dawn to dusk. And Varko's still hanging around. This is Carl Urban. And like, oh, I wanted to sit on that chair. And then Varko hatches a plan. He promises Riddick he will tell him the location of the planet Furia if Riddick comes with him to an abandoned yellow planet and stands right in front of him on a cliff top, agreeing to let Varko have the throne. And Riddick spent so long as the king that all his super alpha male animal instincts that say this is a trap are dulled to the point where Varko can get the jump on him. It's like that bit in every Grand Theft Auto game and I knew it was happening in Red Dead Redemption. I was like, no, I don't want to go into that church that I've been told to by the guy I'm working for. I know the good coats are in the back. I'm not going in. I am not... Well, I guess I have to move the story forward, so I guess my guy is going to be this stupid. Varko then shoots him in the back, fires rockets at the cliffside, which then tumbles down, so Riddick falls a long, long way and hurts his leg quite a bit. Then, uh, Riddick gets up and he's been badly injured. Mm. He performs self-surgery. I would like a medic to look over this film and say, oh no, he definitely shouldn't have done that. He, he basically, he undoes his leg armor because he's hurt his leg in a fall. And he sort of, he puts the, the shin plate, the greave, back on. And to make sure that it holds his, I'm assuming, broken bone or fractured bone, his, his uh, calf bone together, he pins it to his own flesh with, like, giant thumbtacks that he pulls out of his armour. And I'm like, that's going to get infected, like, in minutes. Badly. When you, when you, okay... Before Don't I cause yourself this, more injury while you're trying to patch up an injury. Obviously, I'm not a medical doctor and it's entirely possible mm. that my assumption about how one sets a mm. broken bone is off the mark. Also, obviously, the process of stitching yourself up is technically, or being stitched up, is, is being injured 20 well, more times with yeah. a tiny pin. But, but if, if it's the, problem, the, the end process is less damaging. If the problem is that his leg is broken or dislocated or, or the muscle has, has slipped out of place or something like that, it's obviously meant to be a callback to the bit in Pitch Black where he resets his arm, mm. having had it his elbow dislocated. Yeah. Uh, but you could just say it's obviously supposed to be a callback to Pitch Black throughout this whole movie. not just this movie but the last one it actually struck me but that this one even more so this one even more so this is off the chain they're so nostalgic for that first movie they, they really keep are. reminding you of lines just and go shots just and watch that movie and it's like remember when we made one good movie with a really tight script there's so many good lines in Pitch Black that they keep quoting or, or good imagery, uh, good imagery, or powerful, memorable imagery that they keep riffing on. They never at any point add new stuff which you'd remember instead of or on top of Pitch Black. Yeah. It's absolutely. the whole, it's like a bunch of, like Ghostbusters 2 spends far too much of the time retreading the original Ghostbusters. Mm. Although there are some good lines, like suck in the guts, guys, where the Ghostbusters. There's good bits in Ghostbusters mm. too. There's almost nothing in this 
that is better than anything in the original Pitch Black. It's been stapled together out of weak echoes, effectively. Which, considering how much was at stake, baffles me. It's like, wouldn't you want to do this really well? Well, this is the thing, though. I think they think they did. They just have a lower bar than us. Well, yeah. But the, yeah, the, the whole leg thing... You mean the leg hole thing? The, the point of pins, when you get your a, a broken leg pinned, the pins attach to the bone, because that way it's holding it in place. Oh, he was probably pushing it all the way through to the bone. It wasn't long enough. The the thickness of muscle <laughs> on his leg, it's, it's like he's just... Like you said, thumbtacked it into flesh. That's not going to hold it still. Ow. He'd have been better off just taking the metal greaves mm. and finding some kind of leather thong or something and binding them on really tight. Then he gets chased by jackals. But no, we have to see how hard he is because he can stick pins in his own flesh. <laughs> then he gets chased by jackals and jumps into a hot spring full of wee-wee. <laughs> and, and he holds his breath, which he can do with his super breath-holding powers because he's an alpha furion. I just can't. I just can't. Okay. So as he's down there thinking about what happened in the past, exactly the same as Man of Steel, which happens the same year. You know how uh, um, Henry Cavill's sort of floating in the water going, huh, what happened? Uh, what happened to bring... I guess you're wondering what brought me to this place. Mm. And then there's a flashback to what happened. And they actually, in this version, I think it's not in a theatrical version, but in this version, they, they jump back to what the hell happened regarding the Necromongers. And they did two things here for the theatrical one. They cut all of this footage out because they didn't want people to think about the shitty second movie, just the shitty third movie. And they also animated some of this stuff and put it in a, like a promotional... A YouTube video that fans could watch to bring us up to date with where Riddick was before they thought, saw the theatrical edition sans deleted scenes reinstated. Does that make sense? It does. Well, it, I mean, yes, it It's does. a motion comic. It's five <laughs> minutes long, and it's technically called chapter six of the Chronicles of Riddick, yeah. and it's called Blindsided. But if you've seen chapter seven, Riddick, Dead Man Stalking, or was it Turn Off the Dark? I can't remember. Turn up the beef. <laughs> turn up the beef. Well, they did do that. They did definitely He's a turn lot up the beef. beefier in this. He is. Um, Oof. Yeah. <laughs> the years have <laughs> been beefy. Turn up the beef. Throw your body on the flame. Let your meat release. What bothers me about this bit is the You've, whole... It's, it's replication of everything you're about to see. The whole self-reflection whilst underwater thing is, is obviously echoing this classic moment in The Graduate. But do you know what that scene in The Graduate was not? It was not demonstrating how long Dustin Hoffman can hold his breath. It should have been. <laughs> Better move it. not what it was about. Turns out Dustin Hoffman was an alpha furion. Ah! 
which is why Mrs. Robinson was so attracted to I, them. I can't. Are you going to talk about that now? Or you we already have done. Like... We did it uh, last oh, that time. Was it? Yeah. Okay. Oh, my God. I explained it there in so many words, but then we rewatched that video and you were yeah. like, oh, yeah. my God. Okay, so, didn't work out with the Necromongers. He, he, he murmurs that uh, they were trying to put a, thr- a crown on my head or a noose around my neck, which immediately made me go, so they do have the death penalty in this world. Well, at the very least, they have nooses. Yeah, well, yeah. They noose you for a bit, they throw you into prison, and then they pay Bob Gunton one and a half million credits for his prestigious new prisoner. makes sense. Yeah. So he's hanging around with courtesans, and there's like five girls in his bed, four girls in his bed. Four girls. Four girls in his bed, all thoroughly shagged out. Shagged, shaved. He has... Fucked these women into exhaustion. And they're all just writhing around saying, come back to bed, Riddick. And he's like, no, I want to stare out the window. One of them is. The others are all asleep. (laughs) Okay. The others are like, oh, you shagged us so hard. We didn't want to pay them extra to speak. Come on. Okay. So uh, one of them comes over to him and and says, you know, his chief interests of talking are once again how he was he's really good at killing people and how he was born with an umbilical cord around his throat. Again, like, it's the only thing he'll talk about. He's a guy you meet at the bus stop that you can't wait to get away from. (laughs) And the courtesan's like, hmm, interesting, and then stabs him in the back. And then he goes, ah, you didn't get me in the heart. Uh, I was wearing, like, special armour. And then says, it was a a body cavity. You stabbed me between the fifth and sixth ribs, not the third and fourth ribs. Although it does look a little bit, because of the differential in height, it's like, well, come on, give her a break. She did stab higher, but she She had to stand on tippy toes in order to get all the way up to your heart, mate. And then he stabs her to reinforce how really good he is at killing, especially women. I'm not sure you needed to do that, but for like all your kind, ye are false. We're doing that again. By the way, did you notice... Tandiwe Newton, nowhere near this thing. Don't Dame blame her in the slightest. Dame Varco is sir not appearing in this film. As is Dame Dench. Now, I realise that that's because she, you know... She got tired of him trying anymore. to teach her Dungeons and Dragons on set, apparently. Okay. Kind of like a Dungeons and Dragons theme. Oh, is this something to do with sex? <laughs> Far from it, Jen. No, you see, in role-playing, one person is a dungeon master or game master or keeper. He or she controls the world and tells the players what they're experiencing, whether it be battling with a coal monster or just kicking back in a smelly old tavern with some roguish elves. <laughs> Played over a few hours, the game employs dice rolls to determine the outcome of certain events. Now, unlike most board games you might be familiar with, with role-playing games often use a 20-sided dice. Moss, yeah. I want to stop listening to this. I completely understand. <laughs> she was like, oh, that's very interesting. He was like, yeah, see, this is a 21-sided die. Did her character die in Chronicles no. of Riddick? No. She oh. said, she, at the end, she went, well, that's very interesting. Off I go. I'm leaving. <laughs> Even the paycheck was not enough to bring Somehow they convinced Carl Urban to come out and dress... They said, Carl... We'll give you better hair this time. <laughs> and dress as his character Varko again. The hair is a bit better. He's got a lot more guy liner on, which is nice. You know, he looks like less of a wreck. I was just asking, hang on a second. This guy was going to do uh, a takeover bid. You know this to be true. You stood and watched it happen. And he's you want to... written all over You him. want him to be... Like, he's way more experienced at being a necromonger than you. And from the speech he gives, he killed. He was there on Furia, killing all your people, and you want him as your star scream. But we don't really find that out until now, do we? So, so the question is, why has he kept Carl, Carl Urban around? Curly Urban. <laughs> why has he kept Carl Urban around this long? 
Now's the point where we find out why he keeps him alive from here on in, because he points out that he knows where Furia is, yeah. and Riddick is obsessed with finding Furia. That goes sideways very quickly. Yeah. Um, Let's it, abandon that as a plot point. You know what I said about uh, Riddick's chief objective should be destroy the Necromongers in entirety mm. so that it never happens again? Yeah, just wreck them from the inside out. Wreck them from the inside out. Instead, he's kind of a Rutherford B. Hayes of a president. Like, he just doesn't do much. Mm. He's looking at his his uh, snow globes and his like oil TV and see I'm thinking William Henry Harrison yeah he went oh, no. out without his coat on he died in, <laughs> he spent the whole time asleep uh, but well, from the looks of things Riddick is spending most of his reign in bed yeah so. well there is that yes. and uh, yeah the, the Necromongers are growing restless because they want to be taken to Underverse and Carl Urban's like tell you what guy I'll tell you where Furia is and you let me be king. And Riddick's like, oh, fuck it. Yeah, go for it. And it's like, you just... Oh, is that what happened? You just sold out the entire galaxy for the location of a dead planet that has nothing more for you. What the fuck is wrong with you? Like, our hero, ladies and gentlemen, by the end of this movie, he should be coming back and going, no, I'm going to destroy the Necromongers, but he totally doesn't. And he... It's a little bit bad Superman. He, he also trusts Varko, who sends him down to this planet with one escort who has express instructions to shoot Riddick in the back. And it's like the only time he's ever been punked. At least it's the only time he's ever been punked and then badly injured as a result of it. And in the narration, he says, they were supposed to take me to Furia. Instead, I ended up on a planet called Not Furia. And I'm like, wow, you just gave away the store at this point. And I was like, you know what? This could be interesting because ultimately he's doughy, lumbering now and middle age is definitely setting into Vin Diesel. And I'm quite prepared to watch a film about a Riddick who is now off the boil and slow and actually has started to deteriorate and is desperate because then we're like, oh shit, is Riddick going to die? That's Logan. That's the thing though. That's the meta text. Him being in that state of I am too old for this shit and I have lost my edge because I have been absorbed by the decadence of the Necromongers. Yeah, I got civilised. Yeah. Got to find the animal again. Absolutely. Which, can I just go back to that briefly? The Necromongers are supposed to be this galaxy-dominating military fucking force. With a fleet of dick if ships. all their upper echelons are doing is eating pies and fucking courtesans, how the hell are they maintaining that kind of military discipline? Well, one assumes the Lord Marshal's middle manager of all sweater folders, Colm Fjord, <laughs> was doing more than what Riddick was doing. Well, That's why the Necromongers were getting bored. It would appear. But yeah, so him being on this planet and sort of saying that he's, he's out of shape and therefore... Next we conquer the sheep squeezers of Splatican 5. Make that your story. Lengthen that. Make his recovery from that the, the point of him being here. That he has sacrificed his edge for, for whatever it was the Necromongers were giving him. Mm. And now if he's going to survive, he needs that edge back. I still think that he could d uh, do this, sharpen himself up, accept that he's going to die, mm. destroy the Necromongers in a flashback, and just like, they, they were all fucked. They were all dead. Necromongers out of the game. We're not going back to them. Mm. Furia has in effect been avenged. But what now? But what now makes for a really good movie if it's a case of he's actually asking that question? Absolutely. But it lasts 
what, five, ten minutes, and it's the prep for the thing mm. that happens next. Also, under those circumstances, you have Riddick drop down onto this shit-ass planet, and it, there's just a few prospectors there being menaced by bandits, and then you have a western, where this old guy who used to commit loads of violent crimes is like, I kind of don't want to do that anymore, and ends up trying to save and help the farmsteads. Yeah. It's been done, but we've not seen Riddick do this in a way that actually opens up his character. Honestly? That would be interesting. That would make this work as a two-hander with pitch black and then you could completely ignore Chronicles of Riddick in the middle. There you go, yeah. I mean, I have, I have already reworked the canon in my head that all the stories that take place after pitch black are now Jack, decades in the future, Cloud Atlas style, telling bullshit stories about this guy that she met when she was a kid. And then I died. You died, Auntie Jack. I got better. When I'm 80 years old and I'm teaching my kids how to make pizza and they ask me, oh, where'd you make pizza? Bitch, I made it in Florence. That's where I made pizza. So she's going to call her grandkids, bitch. <laughs> You're the best grandma ever, Grandma Wow. <laughs> yeah, please don't hit us again. Another thing this reminded me of was God of War. At the end of God of yeah. War, he ends up defeating Ares, that's the first PlayStation 2 game, and taking the throne of the God of War. So Kratos is the new God of War. In the second game, he tracks down all the gods and kills them all. Because there's like, once you get to that high, there's not much else you can do apart from destroy the system. Mm. And so he destroys the system. Third one, he's fully, full-on psychopathic and destroying everyone. Fourth one, Dad of Boy, happens into outer space. Sixth <laughs> one, made out of jam. <laughs> but this one is Dad of Dog. Yeah. But here's the thing. Fourth one is that, is, is that he's retired, he got a wife, he had a son, he's, like, put all of this violence behind him, and then creepy dudes start turning up and knocking on his cabin door, and he just wants to be left alone. That's a good Riddick story. Mm. Riddick... Dealing with a kid. We've never seen that before. We have very briefly. Riddick dealing with a kid in a protracted sense yeah. that goes on for the whole movie and is narratively part of that. Yeah, Riddick dealing with Jack in the first one mm. is one of the most interesting elements of his character because it seems so antithetical to this guy who must kill and stab everything around him. But if you uh, uh, j just try to reclaim your animal side, it's effectively just trying to reclaim your youth and flexibility. Yes. Which is not the same thing at all as reflection on your age. No, it's not. Okay. So, uh, there's more survival in Act 1, and there's more Greeblies. There's a, I mean, we don't really mention this uh, so far, but the Riddick series is full of monsters. Like, there's loads of, of, of strange creatures. To a degree, it reminded me of The Mandalorian, which is this sort of gruff guy wandering around from place to place with a child that is bringing out of him all of these feelings. And, you know, he meets a whole bunch of big greeblies on various planets. Mando is a way better version of the Riddick story. Yeah, well, th this whole... Especially stuff... since the Mandalorians are a special race who are blah, 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 and Absolutely. they're all warrior-like, and it's the whole... same thing. He had his village burned down. This whole thing about the, the, the purpose of the story is for him to reclaim his animal side, and this is, in, in Riddick, it is constantly pushed as this animal side is the desirable part of you. You, you want to be this big tough guy for what fucking purpose if you bring in the child mm. then you have right you you don't want the animal side because it makes you a very unpleasant person to be around but the bottom line is that to an extent you need it if you are going to survive and if you are going to protect this person who is very vulnerable and reliant on you for their defense that is the purpose of it if it is all in and of itself about i just want to be the best 
gator wrestling boy, which if I wanted to see that, I'd watch fucking Jackass. <laughs> then it's just, what are we even doing Jackass here? is not what about is physical about? excellence. It's no, about that, endurance. That's why the gator wrestling is more interesting in that. <sighs> the gator wrestling only occurred in the TV show. Afterwards, it was trying to crawl over gator pits with chicken in your pants and uh, <laughs> having a little gator bite on your nipple. That's not the same thing at all. Indeed. Uh, well, see, I was originally going to say Steve Better Irwin. gator wrestling, but... <laughs> I was going to say Steve Irwin originally, but he's just so nice. He's like the anti... He was the antithesis. My God, that's Tiny Alligator's music. That's Tiny Alligator's music. The best part of Act 1 is where he kind of befriends this little hyena jackal puppy thing. Mm. Sort of, he starts experimenting with different toxins and and things that he gets from animals. It's it's quite Predator as well, the third act of Predator. It's a bit difficult. Which I like. I I liked the fact that this whole segment is non verbal. Yeah. Everything is is sold. Do you know what I mean about like when you see it Act 1 again, you're like, oh, maybe this isn't as bad as I remember. Absolutely. Do you know what? I could have done with an entire movie's worth of this Mm -hmm. and not have to deal with the shitty back end which we will get to shortly shitty back end (laughs) shitty back end is David Toohey's most recent project oh dear Riddick trying to reconnect with his his primitive self, effectively. He's he's having to live off what he can kill. What you keep what you kill, Riddick! Yeah. Well, no, you don't keep what you kill. You fashion what you kill into a handy bookshelf. Yeah, you make it into um. a wallet. You can hold more rupees in that. <laughs> Absolutely. So he's he's having to live off what he can find in this in- extremely barren area. Mm. There seems in Planet to be Yellow. One kind of creature that serves as both threat and food and raw materials for making all sorts of different things. Yes. But they come in multiple different sizes. Like the babies are, are these little tiny hideously demonic things that are incredibly toxic. It's a and little then, bit monster hunter thinking yeah, about it. And then the the big ones are like they'll they'll flatten you but they're not as dangerous when they bite you and, and blah de blah. Oh they'll flatten you. But the, the the scene that you're talking about, he he effectively starts to try to make himself immune to the poison mm. of these creatures. And he tests this he makes like a pouch with poison in it with a little needle on it. It's a little syringe. He he tests it on the baby hyena to make sure that it's not just going to die out right. And Mm. when it doesn't, then he's like, right, now I can start doing this with myself. But, I mean, like, the hyena has grown up on this planet. You didn't, Riddick, which means that it's potentially going to do all kinds of weird shit to humans. Absolutely. It's entirely likely that these creatures have a natural immunity to the fucking things in the first place. Mm. So, I mean, it's something. Like, that... But it is, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Even if it doesn't make sense that visually is something it is and like I said if the whole film had been this and then it had just been and then I, I really like your idea of this like little pocket of settlers that he comes across and, and makes it his business to maybe protect them without even letting them know that he's there mm. just defend them and, and give them an opportunity to I feel thrive. like like he tries to be civilised and then the uh, the bandits come along and he sort of like tries to 
shoo them off in a way that he considers normal people to behave mm. and eventually they leave him with no other choice but to go completely fucking feral on them yeah. which I mean that's a movie that's a something you'd want to see and especially if it's working in a relationship it doesn't matter it doesn't have to be a boy could be a guy could be a girl could be someone who's less powerful than Riddick is the important absolutely. thing absolutely and and that it gives the indication then that this animal side that he is so desperate to recapture mm. comes with a buttload of negatives also it would help if this person that he's uh, trying to help Reminds him of Jack. Yeah. The person that he let down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the alternative is, of course, that he keep they keep talking about Furia and his return to Furia. And the end of the movie, he's now off to Furia, potentially. I mean, they, they we still don't know. And there may not be anything that, apart from comic books that ever covers this. Mm. But imagine if he got to Furia, found 150 people still alive. And they were like, okay, so hang on. You left the Necromongers, continuing conquering the galaxy... To come find us. Fuck you, Riddick! You had one job! They thought... Avenge Furia! They thought we were dead. Odds of them ever coming back to Furia, nil. Now you're here, say they decide to come and find you. It's the dangling thread. It's the Necromongers are dangling and they don't even know it. Yeah. They just like they're so rotten as a uh, a concept. But since the whole of that second film is about the the squaring away the necromongers who only approached his uh, planet and destroyed everyone and and strangled all the babies and then question mark mm. uh, because of the prophecy which then now has come true. You then deal with the necromongers after that. Last word I'll say on this subject. It's just awful. Okay, so that's Act 1, and then it is shattered by the intrusion of Act 2, and then a very short Act 3. Act 2 is, and it's like, wait a minute, who's Riddick interacted with in the past? Mercs, prisoners, bunch of scumbags, prospectors, and, you know, and evil armies. Okay, so who does he encounter now? Let's change things up. Mercs. And a bunch of mercs come down to look for him, and then another bunch of mercs who are entirely separate, come down also to look for him. Is this because Varko put a bounty on his head? I have absolutely no idea. The first batch are reminiscent of Nick Chinland's gang from Chronicles of Rhythm. Bunch of scumbags. Yeah, exactly. They have Dave Batista in their number. This was a year before Guardians, like I said. He was trying to work out... He had been in a kickboxer film as well. Yeah. And uh, he was trying to sort of work out who he could be on screen, and he wasn't there yet. And then the second batch are much more professional. They have matching uniforms and armor and weapons that work. It's weird. They look like the Nova Corps or Judge Dredd a bit. Like they've got these massive shoulder pads. It's crazy. And then, and then, like my brain's going. Are you trying to imply that these are the good guys? Because you appear to have created this universe without good guys, and you certainly don't think that the the the, the cops, which these are the equivalent of, mm. are the good guys. Side note: uh, Dave Batista was in Kickboxer Vengeance three years after this ah. in 2016. He plays a big bad guy that needs to be kicked. Okay. Um, the, whenever I see Dave Batista playing a bad guy, it's like he's believable. Mm. But I prefer him as Drax. Oh, he's really good in... Is it Man 3 he's in or 4? Uh, it's uh, Master Z. He's the big American That's guy. That's it, yeah. He's it, like the, the, the 
dichotomy of his character in that yeah. is brilliant. Yeah, he's very good at that. I just, I feel more comfortable with him as Drax. I yeah. suppose making me uncomfortable well, yeah, is that's a skill. Because he's terrifying. Yeah. Okay, so um, they, they get down there and the bounty is doubled if Riddick is returned dead. And I'm like, okay, you don't have the death penalty, but this is a way around it. However, that only works for tension if you think that the bounty hunters might actually kill Riddick. Like, this is it. He's, he's dead and he's been killed by bounty hunters. Otherwise, it works in the opposite direction. If they need to keep him alive, it gets more tense because that works against their plans and their safety. And at any minute, they might just decide, fuck it. But because they're like, we're going to kill you, Riddick, you know that Riddick's just going to do whatever Riddick needs to do in order to not die mm. at that point. Also, that And is it's not bit... tension. It's just... Okay, let's move us on to the next bit. That to me, which is these a bit movies baffling. all suffer from, apart yeah. from Pitch Black. Yeah, that to me is a bit baffling with regards to the bounty because surely the whole point is we'll pay you more if you bring them in alive because that's more difficult, but it means we can try them yeah. and hang them. Killing someone is easy. Shooting someone in the head is easy. Keeping someone like Riddick alive and in captivity is fraught with challenges and dangers. No disintegration. <laughs> They all seem to be really like, into the idea of catching Riddick and he's playing one team off against the other in a way that could have been done much better if they'd focused it and done that. There are too many creepy scenes that didn't need to be there that could have been cunning negotiations back and forth. Mm. And if there's still a prison complex that still has the bounty out on him because they still want him so that they can lock him up, that makes the Necromunga's empire feel even smaller. Mm. That you can leave civilised space... Run an S and M colony somewhere for however long, and then come back, and and your initial captors still want you so that they can they can put you in prison. Do you know? Welcome what? to the S and M colony, cake or death? <laughs> ah, cake and death. That's what the Necromongers are about. Did he eat the cake or is he dead? Both. Do you know what isn't <laughs> going to happen if Vladimir Putin ever runs away from Russia? Someone Cake? in Tangiers isn't going to want to arrest him for shoplifting. <laughs> okay. The leader of the bad mercenaries with Dave Bautista uh, is uh, Johnny Tepia in uh, Bad Boys 2. He's the guy who's just this horrible, like, like, you know, abusive, rapey guy who at the very end, Will Smith shoots him and then it's like, please fall backwards onto that minefield. And he does and explode. <laughs> and he's very good here at making the bad team seem even badder because he's needlessly cruel and awful the whole way through. You say very good... Well, I mean, he's Honestly, he's an efficient the shit. The the I, I don't like watching him at all, and I wish he wasn't in the film. But if you just want to make this guy seem like a horrible person, you've succeeded. Correct, but the manner in which they do it is so. I want to say lazy. Like, he lets a female prisoner go. They've got a female prisoner. She's like, get away from me. And they've she's got, really scared. They've got a female prisoner that they have clearly been sexually assaulting halfway across the fucking galaxy. Yep, there is that. And uh, they say, it's okay, you're free, go. And she runs away. And then Johnny Tepia shoots her in the back. And it's like, why was that? It's to establish that I'm a complete asshole. 
And it's and that whole thing is. And is it like framed. what? So you needed the cell to put Riddick in? It, Why not just tie her up? The whole thing is is even framed so that her presence in it is irrelevant. It's to show like she could the, have been an actual character. It's to and sh- you shot the character in the back. The, the purpose of the way this plays out is to show their naive young intern how much of a dick the boss actually is. Is he the one who keeps going on about God? Yes. Yeah. He's positioned as a fool. Yeah. Does he survive to the end? Uh, I believe so, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He's like... Because, um, I mean, like, the, the standard would be... The in um, uh, Pirates of Pirates the Caribbean, Caribbean 4. 4. Yeah. Finnick O'Dare, the, uh, the, the one who was the, the new Orlando Bloom for one movie. Mm. Katie Sackoff's in this as well. And I saw all of... I really wish she wasn't. Battlestar Galactica near the end of its run with Sharon. We just gobbled the whole series up and Katie Suckoff was fucking fantastic in she that was. show. She's brilliant. And I've been waiting since then for Katie Suckoff to be really good in movies and it's never happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm so sad about that fact because she has dramatic flair, she has fantastic delivery, she's got amazing eyes and she's got passion and verve. Mm-hmm. And in this, she is objectified out the wazoo. Like, more than any other woman in any other uh, of these uh, Riddick films, she is marked early on as being a lesbian. It's like, she's a lesbian. She doesn't fuck guys. She's the only one who has a shower. She's the only one that we see her tits. And then a Riddick sneaks in and steals a Patterson trope from her toolkit. And... A what? Uh, it's the thing that Arnold Schwarzenegger kills the torturer with in... Uh, sorry, the, the guard for the torturer in uh, True Lies. That doesn't tell me the answer to my question. <laughs> I still don't know what it is. Is there anything you want to tell me before we start? Yeah. I'm going to kill you pretty soon. I see. How exactly? First, I'm going to use you as a human shield. Then I'm going to kill this guard over there with the Patterson troca on the table. And then I was thinking about breaking your neck. And what makes you think you can do all that? You know, my handcuffs? Hmm. I picked them. And there you go. That explains it thoroughly. No more questions about what a Patterson Troke is. It's a tool. A stabby tool. That's all you need to know. Okay. Later on, I'm going to jump to this bit just so we can get all of the Katie Sackhoff stuff done. She keeps getting hit on and bitched at by all the guys. 
Later on, when Riddick is tied up, he says, here's how it's going to go. I'm go you're going to undo these chains. We're going to get to the... Uh, the shuttle. It's it's kind of like uh, him taking charge in pitch black while still chained up. Uh, only this is so much more tiresome because we've seen him do that and it would be so much better if he didn't succeed. But they had extra lines, which I actually did an edited version of this that I have no interest in seeing anymore because I know what's there. The extra lines are, and I'm going to go balls deep into Dahl here... But only if she asks me nicely, real sweet-like. Effectively, he's threatening to have sex with her. And she growls something back at him, or, or and, and he says, you know, he says he likes her toe polish, and she's like, thanks, Predator Pink. And he says, matches your nipples. To which you responded... Toughened your nipples, didn't it? They are so boring. They are so boring and they steal from everything that they think is cool, but only the bit that struck them as being particularly cool. It, it just, this whole film feels like Tyler Durden. Yeah. Toughened your nipples is something that uh, Anthony Hopkins' Hannibal Lecter says horrendously to a grieving mother. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you awful, awful person. We shouldn't be thinking that about our hero, Riddick, that we've come to see this film about. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Is there an audience out there for Jason Momoa in the prank show, Sick on a Widow? <laughs> about Vin Diesel's Riddick. I mean, you know, he's a tough guy. He's a rough guy. He might rape you. If it's... If it's an attempt to build on the, in order to defeat evil, you need another kind of evil. At this point, they're not trying to defeat evil. What they're trying to defeat is a buttload of animals and a storm. Yeah, they're a... up against nature at this point. Yeah, uh, and uh, it's not noteworthy, by the way, that before Riddick threatens to go to town on her, Katie Sackhoff is nearly raped is he nearly raped or entirely raped by Johnny Tapia the 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 scumbag that we mentioned um, before no he he keeps I think Riddick kind of, was ready to kill him but then something interrupts implying that he's going to and then she keeps punching him in the head he he think he got on top of her and he he like holds her down and says i don't fuck guys either remember oh right remember no, that I, bit i obviously blanked that bit yeah and riddick like has a knife and it looks like he's about to kill him and it's like you know what killing a rapist it's a shitty like boy thing where it's like i'm defending women from rapists mm. but i can understand that however letting a rape happen and everyone getting distracted and then later claiming that he's going to make a second rape is not acceptable no grant any last wishes not that the chains aren't a hot look but no, I'm not going to straddle you in front of all these guys. What if I killed all of them first? <laughs> Easy, boy. There's a lot more trank where that came from. Now, cap the captain of the good team, as it turns out, is named Johns. And here's where all the drama of this film comes from. He is the father of Johns in Pitch Black. Which immediately, if you have ability to uh, jump to the uh, internet, you'll go, hang on a second. This guy looks a bit like a slightly greying Freddie Prinze Jr., maybe a Freddie Rodriguez. He's played by Matthew Nabel, uh, who's mostly done TV and films you wouldn't have seen. But he was born in 1972. Cole Hauser was born in 1975. John Sr. sired Johns Jr. at the age of three. 
or is playing way older than he's supposed to look, or Johns Jr. was playing way younger than he's supposed to look. And there's also a, a time differential because uh, he says that Pitch Black happened 10 years ago when it was in fact 13 in, mm. in movie time. There is that. Which also means that, uh, because they med- mentioned five years ago in Chronicles, that Riddick was king of the Necromongers for five years and did nothing. In that time, apart from have sex and maybe get his head shaved again. So, right, this was the bit that I really couldn't grapple with. Why did they need to make this guy John's father? Father, when older brother makes so much more sense. I assumed he was his brother up to the point where they have the conversation where it becomes evident that he's his his dad. Why? I mean, what daddy issues is this confronting? Because as it turns out, Matthew Nabel does have some commanding air. He starts shouting at Riddick when Riddick's in in the uh, chains and saying, just answer me, what happened to my son? And... Like, there's something there because his actor believes in what he's shouting. Mm. Like, he's very concerned that his son just crash-landed on a planet and and he wants to know how he died. And Riddick eventually, over the course of the film, confronts him with, you know, I didn't actually kill your son. Seemed like he was intent on killing himself. He also notes, your son was a junkie. He was really, really into morphine. Cole Hauser mentioned in the original Pitch Black that he does that because Riddick stabbed him, causing him constant pain where he can feel part of the shiv scraping against his spine. So Riddick's like, yeah, he's a junkie. And it's that's so fucking judgmental for a start. And it's caused by you. The thing about Johns that fucking sucked was that he was like, let's kill the little girl and then use her as bait for the sharks. And sees a dying man in pain, desperate for morphine, and goes, not gonna say anything, I've got my stash, all for Johns. That's the bad thing. And he does confront the daddy with that at some point. Which he immediately doesn't believe. And we are reminded that Riddick didn't actually kill Johns or anyone in the original Pitch Black. And then Dave Bautista attacks him and betrays everyone, and Riddick definitely kills him with a big blade. And it's like, what you've done there is undo the good thing that you did before by illustrating that Johns destroyed himself. And that's, like, this is Act 3 when they all get onto these big hogs. They call them hogs, they're like speeder bikes. But the way they've got these big... Uh, Harley handlebars. It looks like old men racing around town in Harley-compatible motorbikes. Same basic model. And just, you know, really gunning their engines so everyone can hear that they can afford to buy a Harley. Well, compatible. Well done. Yeah. Vin (laughs) Diesel in Wild Hogs. Why was he missing from the John Travolta film about the old man bikers? And then Johnny Tepia kills the doggo, and I'm like, fuck this movie. The doggo's the only one I wanted to get off this planet, including Riddick. Yeah. Or just have him eat everybody and then go back to his doggo life. (laughs) Yeah. Doggo life. So after they've ridden around on space Harleys, they've had the uh, conversation about what the fuck happened with young Johns. Riddick gets injured by a creature while they're on their way back to the ship with power cells, much the same as Pitch Black. And uh, John's senior checks Riddick's body, finds that he's probably dying, grabs his power cell and fucks off. And I'm like, you know what? That's fine. Mm-hmm. That is fine. You, ha- you owe this guy absolutely nothing. It looked like he was about to pick him up like Superman with Supergirl on the front cover of Cri- uh, Crisis. But no, he's not going to walk fucking 900 pound Vin Diesel all the way back to the fucking ship. 
so Riddick is effectively left behind. And it's like, oh, okay, well, this kind of makes sense. You know, I always knew it was going to ha- end like this. And so he's fighting a bunch of Greeblies on a uh, that big spur of rock from out of Star Trek. And uh, then the ship turns up, blows them all away, and then rescues Riddick. And our favourite, ladies and gentlemen, Katie Sackhoff's character comes down on a rope like, an, like the eagles rescuing Frodo from the rock. Ironically, Vin Diesel really did need to be rescued from the rock. If you smell what the rock is cooking. And she straddles him, smiling, and goes, let me ask you something, sweet-like. Because he's cured her of her lesbianism and now she does want to fuck him. And then they grabby claw him up to the ship and then divide ship. Sharon is bashing her forehead against the table and with good reason. What the fuck, movie? What the fuck? How obnoxious could you possibly get? I want to burn everything. Do you know, my my ideal end for this film, by the way, Mm -hmm. given that we've established that these creatures come in a range of sizes from little tiny ones to big mamas that can just, like, squish you, uh, is that there's... And as we pan away, it turns out that the entire planet is a really huge one of them. They're all sitting on its mouth and it goes... And eats everyone. I actually thought that it would be neat if at the end Riddick stumbles upon some ruins and finds out, oh no, Varko was actually telling the truth. This it is, is Furia. Furia. Yeah. That's a good ending. That's just Riddick standing on the planet, turning around in these old halls. You know what? I would have accepted you ending on the di- uh, pitch black music under those circumstances. Yeah. Because it, it, that's something. He's come home and... It's he, dead. It's dead. But maybe if he found signs of life along the way, that there's a possibility of a seed of something new being planted. Yeah. But they don't do that at all. He just says, I'm going to go to Furia next if this movie does well. It did do well. Cost 38 million and it made 98 million. That's pretty great. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been another one, but uh, I, I, I don't know what they'd do with it. Vin Diesel doesn't make good choices and David Toohey doesn't make good movies. He makes one great movie. Mm. By mistake. <laughs> oh, it is worth mentioning that David Toohey directed the 2002 film with Olivia Williams and Bruce Greenwood, Below. It's a claustrophobic, creepy movie on a submarine. Because I remember after Pitch Black, we were like, this David Toohey's going places, and got hold of the DVD of Below, and it was fine. In 2009, he also directed A Perfect Getaway, which the New York Times referred to as a genuinely satisfying cheap thrill. Also, coming full circle... I did not know this. He wrote an early draft for the script for Alien 3. The director's cut of this, uh, he goes back to the Necromongers, which of course weren't the framing device in the theatrical one, and he's like, where's Varko? And the courtesan goes, ah, he's gone to Underverse, and all the other uh, um, Necromongers have gone there too. And he says, I don't know, is, is Varko alive or is he dead? And she goes, both. And it's like, oh my god, how's Riddick going to deal with someone who's neither alive nor dead? Oh, he's going to kill him, like he did the Lord Marshal. That makes no difference at all. It just means you'll fight him in that specific way. It doesn't matter. The Lord Marshal was precisely the same as that. Like, he has a special ghost power, which didn't save him in the end. Riddick worked it out. Riddick already has the tactics down. And Varko's less cunning than the Lord Marshal. And that's it. That, that's how it ends. Is Varko alive or dead? Both. Varko will never be seen again. (laughs) 
Uh, and weirdly as well, for the director's cut, there was no music on the end credits. I don't know whether it was a glitch. We went and checked the theatrical cut, and that's totally got Graham Ravel music. But I was like, it's just so eerie. Uh, it, it, like, if it was underverse, like... <sighs> sounds, where it's like something ghostly's going on, and it's beyond Riddick's understanding, and he's going to go in there after them. That's something again. But it is not. It's just complete silence. And I said, you could end, say, Schindler's List with complete silence if you wanted everyone completely somber. Mercifully, John Williams played that really sad uh, piano and violin piece for, for the, the theme just to illustrate life going on. You don't end this movie with utter silence over credits. It doesn't deserve it at all, which is why I think it's a mistake. So, and this is why I wish even more that the film shared the same level of passion that we saw illustrated with the risk that Vin took. I'm, I'm kind of relieved that the Fast and Furious movies have done well. It means that Vin, no matter how annoying and no matter how vain he can be, is at least able to carry on working. Especially if we remember that at the end of the year 2013, his friend and co-star Paul Walker died tragically in a fatal car crash. And I think that it's this event that's informed most heavily on Vin Diesel's outlook since then. This stage of his career has been defined by that loss. Maybe not. Maybe that's just me reading too much into it. But he's never been the same on the Fast and Furious films. Though I do still hold out hope that one day he'll be able to make a film that is actually worthy of all this. He's more than capable of doing that. I love his passion and his goofiness. He just needs to meet writers who can produce screenplays way higher quality with far more nuance than whatever level he considers to be acceptable. School of Movies is supplied with fresh power cells every month by the intrepid yet ragtag crew of our Patreon ship. And the 15 credits sponsors get a special captain shout out every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, John Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Helles Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And if you would like more School of Movies this week, we guessed it on the Franchise Killer podcast. You may remember those guys from the episode we did on Con Air and The Shadow and Super Mario Brothers. Well, we went on their show to talk about Edge of Tomorrow or Live, Die, Repeat. The Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt movie that's kind of like Gears of War meets Groundhog Day. And we had a fantastic time talking about that thing. Here is a clip. It, it, like the, the leaning, in, I mean, particularly the fact that he is supposed to be this, he's hes an advertiser. We're, we're salespeople. We right. sell. That's, that is his character in Jerry Maguire. And obviously there's a, a, a big element of him 
emotionally working through that in that movie. It that helps he that brings... at the very beginning he realises he hates himself. Yeah. So that's the theme of the movie. Indeed. Right. Yeah. Whereas in this, I think he does sort of bring that personality type up to the level of, okay, well, what what would have happened if that had never hit Jerry and then war were declared? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you yeah. know, so, so he, but he doesn't initially have that... Tom Cruise dangling off buildings in Mission Impossible vibe to him. And honestly, I I don't feel like he ever quite gets to that level. I never really felt Mm. like there was a sense of he is now so well-trained and hard that absolutely nothing can get through him. There was always that element for me of something could trip him up because the whole plot being built around he dies and dies and dies and dies and dies it, it just sort of always for me gave him that level of slight vulnerability because for the, for the plot to progress mm-hmm. the way it has been doing he mm-hmm. has to die Yeah, and I think th- this movie's mission statement is pretty clear right from the start when we see it, it's something you never see in a Tom Cruise movie. Tom Cruise dying in a brutal fashion. Yeah. Like the sometimes the first, comical too. Yeah, the first <laughs> time he he encounters one of these mimics, uh, and the uh, blood or whatever it is, the fluid mm-hmm. like lands on his face and you see his face just completely melt. melt. I'm yeah. like, that is Okay, cool. Like uh, yeah. I'm most brutal Tom Cruise death for you, sure. You won't see that in a Mission Impossible movie. You don't. You won't see that in Jack Reacher. Like he's he's the tough guy. I I like seeing this. Oh, you're you're gonna show Tom Cruise die for once. He's not afraid to. Mm-hmm. I always thought Tom Cruise had kind of assumed that role of like the Vin Diesel or the Rock, where they have it written in their contracts, where it's like, I can never be seen uh, lying face flat on the ground because that. Must be, Must, like, be they're, they're, I, I be Must be happy. Must be happy. I can only be punched 35 times in this movie. Yeah. Uh, like, there's a there's a scene in, I think it's Fast Five or Fast and Furious yeah. 6. He and The Rock had to have their punches counted so it came out as exactly... Oh, exactly. my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's Masculine. A, there's a scene where The He's Rock... He's got a sausage roll. I want a sausage roll. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but there's a scene where I think The Rock He's gets knocked... Yeah, the rock gets knocked down by Vin Diesel, and he, in his contract, he can't be lying face down, so he's just sat on his butt, just like on the ground, and it looks infinitely more ridiculous than just being knocked down. Like you're sitting on your butt, just like there in this action space, and like because for whatever reason you can be lying down. I, I don't know. It's Dude. part of his plan. Dwayne may about rock bottom cheese, you, you may not, not rock, rock bottom, bottom Dwayne. Dwayne. <laughs> <laughs> I watched some, I, I don't know why, but today something came up with The Rock where I was watching him. Oh, he posted on his Instagram or something about. Opposite Emily and, Blunt in Jungle Cruise. No, no, it was him and Brock Lesnar back in like 2000 when uh, uh, yeah. Brock Lesnar was taking over. And the ultimate life. I never watched, I don't watch wrestling, but it was it was interesting because they brought up that exact comments like, oh, nobody does the rock bottom except for the rock and then Brock Lesnar does it to him. Anyway. My God! <laughs> Brock Lesnar just did the rock bottom! <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, Tom Cruise does go down. Da- he, he doesn't die, but he does go down in a very disgusting way in Interview with the Vampire. Yes, that's true. I We kind of love that movie. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I so that's the Franchise Killer Podcast, episode 125. Check out the rest of their feed. They put so much effort into their show. And they have fantastic chemistry. It was a pleasure to be on. 
And that is the end of our Riddick shows. At least until he comes back and finally gets to Furia. But if you're not yet on the Patreon and you want a little more, we did a exclusive show on Dark Fury, Escape from Butcher Bay, and Assault on Dark Athena. And here's a clip from that. Now, it's very important that we frame this in terms of what we are used to now versus what we were delivered then. It has a really unhelpful beginning section where you are led to the prison by Johns and you're like, oh, so this is like before Pitch Black. Okay, cool. So what, what happens? And then the game prompts you to kill Johns from behind and he's this like ugly, like stickle brick PS2 era character with no texture on his skin at all. It's just this horrible gonk that sounds nonetheless like Cole Hauser and he's here to get the bounty on Riddick, who he has captured. And you're supposed to kill him, and then the prison uh, automated turret system's like, whoa, you're not supposed to kill him, ah! That's a paradox, and starts shooting you. And you did what I would do, and I'm sure I did do way back in 2004. You veered off to the left and tried to escape across the wastelands, but the wastelands was just this horrible, barely rendered brown mess, and you sort of scooted around to the side and then walked straight out into uh, the machine gun fire. Then you did it all over again, and you were like, I don't understand what it's trying to tell me to do, because you had to press the circle button to help, the triangle button to talk, the R2 button to kill Johns from behind. And then you realized the only way to go was to find the other guy who hadn't been electrocuted by the gun that got, gets dropped by Johns, who lifts up a trapdoor behind you, but you silently. Have be, you have to be looking at him precisely when he does it. Otherwise, you don't know he's done it. So then you go down into the bowels of this uh, prison, and then this other guy just disappears. Did you notice how he just yes. he just evaporated into thin fucking gone. air? Then you're thrown into a one-on-one -on -one combat, and it's like, you better learn to punch quickly. Then you drop down onto a gantry, and you were basically standing on a tiny thin steel rail standing over a guy who was holding a shotgun pointing it up at you and you were punching above his head in a 3D first person perspective yeah. going I don't know what to do then there's some uh, light platforming where you have to climb up on some crates and hang on to a, a, a ceiling rail and kind of monkey bar along the ceiling rail and then go through an air vent and then come out into another place where you have to climb up some more crates and then climb onto a balcony and every point of interaction that isn't punch something or talk to some no even in fact even talk to somebody it's just that it's a different button no actually i've just remembered it's the same button you have to be looking precisely at the thing you want to interact with if you are a millimeter to the left if you are a millimetre to the right, it won't let you do it. You have to be looking at it and it's come up with the little prompt at the bottom that says press triangle to climb up onto the balcony or talk to this person. You've got to be in the right position in order to be able to do it. Remarkably punishing precision required in a 3D first person action adventure stealth game. With a at PS3 controller. Yeah, playing a PS2 game. Or at least PS2 era, it was an original Xbox exclusive. And I emphasize stealth because after that there's a dark section where you're encouraged to take this new shotgun that you've got and kill guys with it. But you're only supposed to kill the first guy with a neck break 
and you can it says you can do a quiet neck break or a faster louder neck break with R2 it's like oh, okay but then there's you another guy up, up the corridor. If you're holding the shotgun. Yeah. And if you do that, having put your shotgun away, you then have to face down the next guy with your fists who has a shotgun. And the next guy, as soon as you approach him, a friend runs up mm -hmm. and they both go, how's it going? And then both stare in the same direction forever. The other guy won't move away. You've got to start shooting them with your shotgun. His purpose of being there is simply to stop you sneaking up behind the second guy and breaking his neck too. Yeah, so so that you don't work out how to do stealth kills too early. Uh, instead, they, they pretty much force you to go, now I'm gonna treat this like a run and gun game, which it isn't. It is not a game where you're supposed to run around shooting dudes with a shotgun. It's This bit's the hardest bit of the game because you don't have the practice and Sharon gave the fuck up. So I got through that bit and just did the run and gun and then it turns out this was all just a dream. Except for the fact that like, doesn't Riddick not dream? He's an animal. He doesn't sleep. Apparently. I don't, don't know. <laughs> we will be back next week with something far, far more wholesome. We're talking about Superman the Animated Series, which I would call the best on-screen representation of Superman ever. If you got HBO, the whole thing's on there in HD. And we had this recorded before Kevin Conroy passed. So it's going to be bittersweet, folks. As you'll all probably know, we already covered Batman the Animated Series last year, and we will be continuing on after Superman to cover Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, and for the first time since I've never seen this show, Batman Beyond. And that's how we get to say goodbye to Kevin. Now, how shall we end this musically? I'm really shocked that we didn't use... I mean, I love the old theme song. I thought we were going to use the new one. Oh, what's that? What is this? That is Vin Diesel's song, my friend. Oh, I had no fucking clue what that was, dude. Because <laughs> you know why, Steve? When The other day when you sent that thing, or maybe it was Kevin that was like, here's Vin Diesel's song that he made, I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> Come it on. It doesn't sound like him whatsoever. No, no it also sounds like a song that should have come out in 2007. Like, absolutely yes. bare minimum. Well, that was him singing right there when he was? just played? Well, yeah, because they, <laughs> they put so much effects and fucking auto-tune over because he sounds like a brick. You know what? Here's the thing, Vin Diesel. Why don't you fucking come out with a goddamn liquor line, dude? No one wants to hear you sing. Great call. You know, I mean, I know we're all bored. We're all in quarantine. We're trying some stuff out. But yeah, mm -hmm. like this, let's do some fucking bald skull vodka. <laughs> bald skull. But I mean, to give Vin Diesel some credit, you got to try everything now. Get it out of the way. Get it done with. When you're only worth $600 million, you really have to pump it up and do one more thing. <laughs> like make music for like bars on the beach. <laughs> Dude, you're totally bah, bah, bah. right, Kevin. If your fucking bar does not open with sand at the front door, you can't play this song inside. You don't know what man feel like I do. Oh, now you're playing Andre the Giant? <laughs> I would rather listen to a song sung by the late Andre the Giant. 
Absolutely. Uh, sorry to derail the whole show. <laughs> There is a man inside this vessel who is something far worse than anyone here has ever encountered. All of the time you try to find someone who hit me like you. And I'm not the type who likes to rush in, but I want to. Hold your breath. Should you survive this day, it is one you will remember for the rest of your life. Do not underestimate the importance of such a thing. Hold your breath. I don't know if it feels like I do. And I was frozen when you walked in the room. Cause every single word, it just makes my stomach turn cold. I don't know if it feels like I do. Recognition they bought with the blood of others. 